Hi, welcome to Both Are True, a space where we look for the healthy memes in different worldviews so that we can boost our meta-immune systems and heal some of this ancestral trauma we're carrying around in this post-colonial, industrialized world that keeps getting warmer. That's Wilhelm Verwurt, a leading researcher in the field of apology, reconciliation, and more recently, white work in South Africa. He's really helped me understand some of the feelings that I've had my whole life about my whiteness and my Afrikaansness and my manness. He's kind of given me frames and and um, ways of identifying some of these feelings and some of these ideas. Um, you know, he's helped me gain a, a, a better understanding of white fragility, of white fatigue, of white guilt. Um, of shame, or the kind of shame that I'm feeling about my identity. He also helped me by giving me some hope about white consciousness and the potential we have to grow as an Afrikaans white community in South Africa. But the biggest gift that Wilhelm gave me during this conversation is by helping me identify another feeling, something that I've been experiencing my whole life and that's kind of been in my blind spot. I haven't really been able to identify it until now. It's kind of like a background noise that's just always there and that's kind of uncomfortable and disturbing. And I feel it. I feel it in association with my white heritage. You know, I feel it in the blood that runs through me, that also ran through slave owners, colonizers, and at the very least beneficiaries of apartheid. I don't have a vocabulary for it. It's not captured by concepts like guilt and shame. It's you know, these feelings are part of it, these emotions are part of it, but it's it's deeper than that, it's, it's something else. I feel it in this association with something that I, at my deepest level, know is wrong, is bad. And I'm, I'm linked to it. And this feeling haunts me, um, partly because it's unidentified. And Wilhelm has helped me see that it's, it's not a psychological dilemma that I'm dealing with. It's, it's deeper than that. It's something in my soul. It's, it's something to do with my soul. It's a spiritual experience. We spoke about a fragmentation of the soul, of the dark night of the soul. I think Wilhelm has, you know, quite a unique perspective and a lot more experience engaging 
uh, and grappling with this feeling than, than most people. Wilhelm is the grandson of Hendrik Verwoerd, who is widely regarded as the architect of apartheid. So Wilhelm has this very unique experience of being born into the political, spiritual center of apartheid. And one of the reasons I will go as far as to say that he is a sage is because he managed to, you know, even though he was born into this cultural, uh, religious pressure, he managed to, in his 20s already, awaken from it. Um, and to see, you know, the truth of what was going on, and to dedicate the rest of his life to reconciliation, to forgiveness, to apology. You know, he essentially left his community, he joined the ANC, he was a researcher on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and since then he's been working uh, globally on reconciliation on helping communities face the past. So he's the perfect person to talk to about this healing. He spent decades trying to understand this kind of version of trauma in South Africa. This conversation with Wilhelm has helped me see that if we're willing to go into this uncomfortable feeling, if we're willing to do the white work, if we're willing to go into this feeling and to sit in the discomfort, then, you know, there's hope for South Africa to start moving towards a more authentic reconciliation, finally. I'm very grateful to have met Wilhelm. For me, Wilhelm really is the wise old man, the sage, sitting on the side of the road, offering wisdom and guidance for the journey ahead. Uh, just a quick note to say uh, sorry for the poor audio quality of this conversation. Uh, we recorded this uh, at Wilhelm's office in Stellenbosch, and when I arrived and I, I, I did the setup, uh, I, I kid you not, for the first time in five years, my kind of main microphones just didn't work. But a good friend, TJ Tablanche, helped me mix this to make it sound <laughs> uh, decent. And so I hope you, yeah, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time. I don't know how it happened, but I've, I only became aware of you and your work quite recently, which is crazy when I think about it. Um, so I've read a few of your papers, and it'll be difficult for me to express in a short period of time just how comforting it's been to read the work of someone, an Afrikaans man who's my late father's age. Okay. Writing and expressing so compassionately mm. and comprehensively mm. ideas and about feelings, expressing feelings and exploring ideas that I've really struggled with, feelings mm. that have been very 
uncomfortable mm. for me and complex and unsettling mm. around being a white Afrikaans man in South Africa. Um, so it's already had, your work has already had a big impact mm. on me. Mm. And so um, thank you. No, thanks for the feedback. You don't <laughs> often get feedback like that. So okay. uh, no, thank you. Also the intergenerational yeah. nature of what you've just shared, I think is increasingly for me a vital part of of our bigger challenge, you know, that we have so many big, obvious divisions we have to deal with, but this kind of intergenerational, intra-family, mm. also intra-group dynamics, I think, is, is an important part of the long-term healing process. I think so too, and I, I honestly don't, don't get much of it. Um, mm. uh, the generally, older generation of Afrikaans people in my family and my communities don't want to talk about these things or it's really uncomfortable or it's very um, alienating mm. um, so I really look forward to it and I think for that reason you know if it was up to me we would be chatting all day yeah um, but to help us focus in today on this kind of initial conversation we're having I thought it would be good to focus in on the work that you've been doing with the Dutch Reformed Church mm -hmm. um, I'd like to you know depending on time I'd love to look a little bit at that at the history the history of it for those people who aren't aware of it. I think mm -hmm. it might be important. Um, but more, more I'd like to focus in its, on it in its current state mm. and how whiteness is being kind of experienced and explored and developed in that space. And then I wanna, I'd love to look at it as this kind of institution, this powerful institution that has a lot of influence in South Africa and therefore hold, holds a lot of potential mm. to support a type of more authentic uh, racial reconciliation in South Africa, which is a very new idea for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love to get to that okay. because that's really, to give you some context if you don't know and maybe for the listeners who are new, but that's really what this project is about. It's about looking at different worldviews, different systems of thinking and particularly spiritually mm -hmm. um, to find kind of healthy means, mm -hmm. healthy ideas uh, to support healing yeah. in South Africa, yeah. but also a little bit more selfishly maybe to stitch together, to blend together, to mix together a fractal, fluid, kaleidoscope, kaleidoscopic worldview mm -hmm. that is at least solid enough uh, to stand on okay. in this you know, confusing world mm. that, that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, I... Um, and I just want to acknowledge this up front, a little bit nervous about looking at the Dutch Reformed Church mm -hmm. um, because of my history in it. Mm -hmm. I was raised conservative Afrikaans, yeah. same as you. Yeah. And the Enge Kerk, the Dutch Reformed Church, really was the foundation of my worldview growing up. And I, I, I hold a lot of trauma from that. Yeah. Um, even though I'm a white Afrikaans man, I, the th theme of my childhood in relation to that worldview is, is traumatic in my memories. Uh, it's, the general feeling is that of being judged and rejected and embarrassed and uh, I don't know if I can say oppressed, but it's a, it's a, it's a, ten, it's a tense, mm -hmm. it was a tense experience. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm, I'm nervous of looking at the Dutch Reformed Church because of my personal connection mm -hmm. to it, and then obviously because of the uh, role it played in, in mm -hmm. the history of apartheid. Mm -hmm. But I know that healing sometimes requires opening up wounds, <laughs> and I can't imagine a better person to talk mm -hmm. to about it. Um, mm -hmm. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having this conversation. Mm. Mm. I also look forward to swimming the deep water with you. Yes. Because it is deep water territory. But unless we figure out a way to wade in and with support and with preparation and with kind of a awareness that we're not standing on firm ground and that we don't have the answers, but somehow we need to figure this out together. Yeah. Um, so that we get to the point where this kind of exhilaration of being able to swim together, you know, like that sense of wild swimming is a metaphor I really love as a, nice. as a kind of inspirational vision, because why would you deal with these difficult things? It's not some kind of masochistic journey. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a deep healing journey so that we can be free to, to be fully human together and to be fully alive in this place at this time. And, and for me, that's what's at stake. Um, and I think that's the beauty almost of rediscovering the authentic, um, radical nature of the Christian faith that we have been brought up into. This, this idea that somehow in this dying, in this very painful taking up of our cross as white Africans, South Africans, men, uh, in that taking up of the cross there is the potential, if we do it with our black Mm. Uh, fellow Christians to to come alive in ways that that I think is deeply liberating, and I think that's what I hope we can also get to. Yes, I love that uh, metaphor of swimming in deep waters. Mm -hmm. And maybe to add to it, my a, a very close friend of mine uh, also lost her father relatively recently, and we've been kind of on this journey together. Uh, and so every year we um, if we don't see each other for a long time, we kind of check in. Mm -hmm. uh, and every calendar event that happens, um, I'm sure you've, you've grieved mm -hmm. losing, you know, the lost ones. Every calendar event that, that comes in, in the years after they passed, there are, you know, you have a, she explained it as a wave, yeah. a wave of grief. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly, some of these uncomfortable conversations can be like waves. Um, and I said that then said to her that maybe it's like getting into the ocean mm -hmm. where initially the first few waves are really big mm -hmm. and difficult mm -hmm. to get through and to dive under, maybe mm -hmm. not dive under isn't mm -hmm. great visual, but to get through. Mm -hmm. But then eventually you do get to a point where the waves aren't as mm -hmm. big and mm -hmm. rough, but more like a swell mm -hmm. in which yeah, you can navigate your, mm -hmm. you know, you can swim a little bit more freely. So I love that yeah. idea of swimming in deep water. Um, and the tragedy almost that people, because they're afraid of those waves, and understandably, I mean, there's a part of us that I think is wise to be afraid of, of dealing with things that are rooted over many generations. Like this is not just me and you dealing with it. It goes back a long way. Mm. But by being afraid of entering this water, we stay on the... Sure. Yes. 
And I often think, imagine, you know, like your life is restricted just to walking on the shore and you never get a chance of swimming in the sea, let alone like scuba diving. Like if you think of how much there is to reality um, that you miss out on. It's you literally just stick, a new world. There's so much the... more to life, you know, and without depths, we're not, we won't get to it. And you're not going to get through to depths without facing cold, pressure, darkness even, like as you go deeper. And for me, that's almost like a spiritual uh, quest then, you know, mm. to say that we need to find ways to make a dogmatic thing which we grew up with, but it's actually a very radical life path to, yeah. to face, go into these difficult challenges, accept your incarnation, your embodiment in this time, in this place. It's not an accident that I have this skin and that I come from this cultural background and I have this family background, so just embrace that as part of the incarnational mystery and then say, okay, what does it then mean to become fully alive sure. in this place? And I think for us, it means overcoming separateness, overcoming apartheid, mm. which sadly, as we know, has been sanctioned and supported by the Christian faith in the Dutch Reformed Church in particular. So, so mm. I think this unmasking the illusion of separateness for mm. me, it gets to the heart of the matter um, that we have to grapple with. I'm going completely off script here, but that's mm. generally the nature of these things. You, you, um, you speak about, you know, kind of how we can get back to the, the more, I think you use the word radical mm. Christianity. Um, how does the version of Christianity that you are a part of, think about separateness mm. and togetherness mm. and oneness versus yeah. separateness. I'd love to know. I, again, I was raised in a mm. very uh, limited, mm. short-sighted version of, of the Dutch Reformed Church, yeah. very conservative. And so I don't actually know a lot about the more beautiful, mm. uh, inclusive version of the faith. Well, I think you're right that, that there was a part of me that almost had to leave the Dutch Reformed Church to discover uh, some of this depth of this particular faith tradition. Um, um, and that, that's sad, but I think it's still true to some degree that if you have a church denomination that is still largely white, Afrikaans-speaking, um, you, can, you can talk about unity, you can think it, but you can't live it if you live still in separated neighborhoods. Uh, you want to go to a church service and speak Afrikaans, you, you will be surrounded by people that look like you, and it will provide a sense of belonging, it will provide a sense of comfort, and there's some value to it in terms of the moral education that you might get, but in terms of the actual heart of our faith, which is about crossing boundaries, letting go of your family, letting go of anything that stands in the path of deep compassion, especially for the stranger and especially for the enemy. So it's, it's radical, like if you think about it. Mm. Um, and this idea that ultimately we are one body with all our diversity, you're not going to experience the, the, the reality of that if you still live in segregated, separated uh, friendship circles, church uh, congregational circles. Mm -hmm. and, and sadly, that's still 
the, the success of apartheid uh, manifesting itself, for example, in the Dutch Reformed Church, still really grappling with this challenge. And mm. uh, I know there are people who are very seriously grappling with it, and you do see movements. I don't, it's not a, a, a hopeless situation, but I do think unless you're willing to move out of your comfort zone, in terms of your friendship circles, your social circles, your work environment, your neighborhood where you live, and especially your faith community, which is your deep, deep soul work, mm. unless that becomes more diverse, more like a space where you can also deal with these very difficult challenges we face, then I think the faith will remain a cultural club almost. Mm. Uh, you know, churchianity, yeah. uh, not Christianity, yeah. this kind of... Um, so for me, I discovered a lot of that um, deeper tradition within, I suppose one could call it the more contemplative traditions of the church, okay. which I discovered through people like Richard Rohr and Anthony de Mello and Thomas Keating, you know, and many of them coming from a Franciscan tradition, a Catholic tradition, kind of an uh, Indian Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I felt completely lost in a very heady, reformed faith that's very strong in terms of reading scripture and preaching and it became quite heady, I think. So I was then invited into a, a journey of prayer, a journey of, of finding God beyond what we can capture in our words and in our dogmas. Mm. Um, and this kind of invitation into a much more expansive, much more inclusive, um, mm. much more compassionate kind of Christianity, um, which for me then became a lifesaver, you know. Mm. And since, what, the early 90s, mid-90s, I, I found this kind of regular practice of what some people call centering prayer. Mm. It's more like contemplative prayer, which, which for me is really about cultivating a unitive consciousness, or a unitive vision that, mm. that, that starts to not deny our differences, but, but that, that accepts that fundamentally we are united already, because yeah. that's the way we are created. And all we need to do really is get out of the way and allow that foundational unity to surface and manifest in the way we treat each other with care and compassion. Mm. Um, so, in that sense, reconciliation is a, is a problematic word because it suggests sometimes it's us doing the work. But I think from a faith point of view, it's us needing to allow the, the existing unity that has been tainted mm. and damaged, but, but it's still there for that to surface. Um, wow, that's and that powerful. makes a big difference. To, yeah. to, it's not the ego, it's not my yeah, work, yeah. It's, the, it's the healing work of the Spirit that works through us. Yeah. And that's been, and, but you can only live like that if you have a very committed practice to, yeah. to be rooted and grounded in that. You know? Otherwise, it becomes heady or it becomes just a superficial cultural belonging system. You know? It's so powerful, though, to think about that because it seems like you're going, I like that you use the word heady, that you're going more into the heart and into the gut. Absolutely. And Absolutely. this idea that, you know, maybe there's some kind of mycelium, metaphysical connection between us that we can access by mm. going to this nodal point that might yeah. be located somewhere around here. And this idea that then that that process becomes 
in, interfa interface interface so like you can absolutely be a uh, whatever version of a Christian you are, you can be a Buddhist. Yeah. You know that, that's a religion. You mm. can be, you can mm. have African spiritual practices. Mm. You mm. can be around, throughout mm. the spectrum. If we remove, not remove, but if we transcend the cultural belonging yeah. aspect of religion, there is that may, might be a way in which reconciliation can work through us in this way, where yeah. we get out the way. Yeah, it's it's dangerous. I mean, we need to be careful because you don't want to deny our embodiment. So there is something about the richness that comes with our embodiment. But for me, it's sometimes it, that's almost on the surface. And so the surface doesn't mean it's superficial. Mm. It's the visible. It's the tangible. It's and I sometimes have this image of an inverted triangle. So that on the surface, yes, you know, we are very clearly often very different in the way we speak the way we are spirituality, and there's some very serious differences that, that creates conflict. But if we can figure out a way to go deeper, in that process we do move closer, and there comes a point where we connect, I think, beyond dogma, beyond difference, beyond language even. Uh, and that, it's in darkness, I mean, the metaphor that's often used is like Moses meeting God in the cloud on the mountain, but it's a, it's a, it's a cloud that comes over you and there's a darkness, but it's a, it's a darkness of intimate encounter, which is not visual, which creates a distancing. And, um, and to hold onto both, that's, I think, the challenge. It's moving between the surface, where we, we, where we take our uniqueness and our incarnation if you want to use that language seriously it's not suspended it's not denied but it's combined with mm. a discipline of deep connection mm. uh, and over time it becomes a sense of being rooted in that mm. depth so that so that when the wind begins to blow to switch metaphors and it becomes a dry summer or it's a winter storm that, you know, there's a lot of, mm, resist it's oh, a yeah. lot of um, okay. often very confusing, painful movement, but, but More you are root, you're grounded, mm. you're rooted. And for me, that's, uh, that's our challenge. And I think increasingly you find in, in the progressive kind of faith circles where people talk about, we need to find practices that help us to be, and, and literally even neuroscience is saying we literally have to rewire our neural pathways. Mm. So there needs to be this commitment to practice. And that's the beauty. If you sit together and you practice mindfulness, content, contemplative prayer, uh, you, it doesn't matter your, who you are and what your background is. But in that energy of being together, there is the potential for something deep to take root. Mm. I love that. And thanks for yeah, for reminding me of the complexity. Mm. Um, maybe on that idea of complex, complexity and surface level differences that we have. Um, so I read your paper on um, I won't remember the exact title, but I'll have links in the in the podcast notes. Um, but dismantling, diagnosing, diagnosing, and dismantling whiteness in the mm. Dutch Reformed Church, something yes, yes. around that. Um, mm. And the workshops, the life histories workshops that mm. you did with mm. the clergy who mm. are under the age of 40 mm. in the Dutch Reformed Church, mm. where you, um, people shared their narratives mm. uh, in growing up in this community and how mm. whiteness was 
mm. constructed mm. Uh, for them. Mm. And I wondered if there were any strong insights that came out of that or any mm. striking narratives or maybe similarities mm. between the narratives mm. that mm. you might have learned from. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Let me just be very clear. It was, it was an intergenerational team effort. Okay. So I was approached actually by some of the young people who were impacted by the student fullest movement in 2016, 17, 18. Uh, and young white Christians who are committed to reconciliation but finding themselves in a church where they still have to grapple with this whiteness and the fact that as young people there it's often the church is still dominated by middle-aged men mm -hmm. uh, and often women, young women. Um, so a few of us came together and few colleagues who were a bit older like me, we came together and, and we developed this storytelling process together. Um, and it became for me very moving and I think also for many of the participants because in some sense I was representing the older generation that they also are in conflict with in the church but also representing sometimes the father type figure that they also were struggling with. Mm -hmm. Often men who were in the army and who were uh, like blunted in our ability to, to, to really communicate. Um, I mean, I managed to avoid conscription, fortunately, wow. I think, but, but I was still steeped in that militarized masculine culture. And I think young people are faced with that. So, so what struck me in many of those narratives in terms of the generational dynamic is that there's many, many issues that young people are struggling to discuss, especially with their fathers, within white Afrikaans-speaking Dutch Reformed Church circles. So it's a very on the surface a monolithic grouping, but actually there's a lot of tension and conflict there and intergenerational unfinished business, which is gendered, which is definitely coming with a different generation. Mm -hmm. So that's the one almost like thing that, that stood out for me and that we need to have spaces, especially for men of my generation, people from their mid forties up into their 60s, probably all people who've been through that period of uh, church-sanctioned, toxic, militarized masculinity. Like mm. we can talk about that in more depth. But yeah. so, so that's a huge topic. I think waiting to to be opened up yeah. and worked with. So that's the one thing. The other thing was obviously the focus of those workshops was on trying to understand how we were socialized as white South Africans. How did we become white? Oh. Because many of the young people that we were engaging with and that I was engaging with, they were very keen to go and challenge older people in their congregations to, to, to wake people up to, to what the students were helping us to see about the unfinished business of transformation. Mm. And both my colleague, Teresa and I, we were saying, you know, you cannot change people you can't facilitate change in people if you've not really done that work also on yourself. Okay. And so if you want to change older people in the Dutch Reformed Church, you also have to make sure that you've dealt with your own socialization, with your own prejudices, with your own racism, so you don't project that onto an older person. So we said, let's start by telling our own stories. How did we become white? Let's go back to our earliest memories of the first time I became aware of being a white person. And that was a very disturbing theme that emerged for me. When I listened to people who are now in their 20s, their 30s, and they tell the story of the first memory being of the black woman in the house who helped to raise them, or who was the domestic worker, 
or the black man who was the garden person or the domestic worker. When I listened to those stories and how it often would have been um, combined with a paternalistic or a maternalistic care and a kind of missionary care, but at the same time very separate lives, separate you know, utensils, separate this, separate that. Mm. When I listened to those stories, I realized it's not that different to the way I grew up in the 60s. Yeah, so, so, so my, there's like this my age. So they grew up uh, yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, so, so like oh, decades apart, yeah. a transition to a new political system apart, yeah. but those intimate socializing spaces are still racialized in an unequal way and in this kind of fraught intimacy of, of domestic loving relationships, but also... It's very messy. Sure, fraught intimacy. Yeah, that's the language I think one of our colleagues at yeah. UWC uses. So there's a lot of literature on this. And I think, yeah. again, it's, you know, the feminist tradition obviously talks about the personal being political. And if you think about it psychologically, your first memories, even your subconscious socialization as a white person in terms of relationships with black South Africans or people of color is in this unequal, mm. fraught intimacy context. Yeah. We are th like family. Of course, we're not like family, but it's mm. also, there is something going on there. So, so I think some of the way we are struggling with, with authentic relationships that are equal, that are not paternalistic, mm. that are friendships across the racial divide, I think comes, the difficulties that come with that is rooted in this, this very yeah. complex problematic ways in which we are socialized still. I mean, sorry to interject, but like when you said earlier how neuroscience is telling us we need to rewire, re yeah. like how powerfully those experiences must have wired our, yeah. our pathways yeah. to have this. Yeah. And if you then combine that with a church community that's very strong on missionary outreach. I mean, I grew up, I don't know, I think even young people today, you go on holidays, you go on these visits to the Transkai or the Eastern Cape and you go and do missionary work and you help people. You know, we are helping the poor. So it's still about us being in power. It's still about us being the kind of the magnanimous good Christians who are reaching out and helping. Mm. And that's a very difficult culture to uproot because it comes with privilege and power and with inequality and not with vulnerability. With good intentions. Good intentions. That's, so yeah, all of so that more, then... It's much more difficult yeah. to address. So when somebody then challenges you and say, you know, I experience this as, as a kind of racism or I think you are not conscious of what you're actually doing here and the way you try to help me suggests a that lot you of... you think differently about and me. And you are better, you are the white savior. Mm. Uh, and actually, no, that's not helping me. And Steve Biko, of course, said that in the 70s. Yeah. You know, all these white liberals who come in and so-called progressive whites who come and help. We don't want that because actually you've not done the work on yourself to unmask your false sense of superiority. Yeah. We need to do work on interiorized inferiority in terms of black consciousness. But for white consciousness work, we need to unmask, uproot our false sense of superiority. And unfortunately, religion and the kind of highly unequal racialized dynamics we still have in our society, those things combine in quite toxic ways mm -hmm. to, to make people quite defensive 
when you open up these conversations. Yeah. Um, so, so part of what we were doing in the Dutch Reformed Church was somebody used the language, I think it was my colleague, Jakob Boerta, who talked about in-reach. In-reach. Yeah. Instead of out-reach. out-reach. <laughs> like you can still go and perhaps engage with your with black fellow Christians and be involved in projects, but do it in a way where you are actually opening yourself to be the one being taught, mm. being challenged. That you are the one who has to unlearn mm. and become vulnerable and do that in authentic relationships across the racial divide, where you're not the majority, where you're not in control, and where you are not the one reaching out in a kind of safe way. So, so, so that's our challenge, I think, is how do we create in us the capacity to be willing to take risks back to the deep water swimming, mm. where you, you know, you, you're not in control, you don't have firm ground, you're it's not uncomfortable. The, yeah. It's uncomfortable. You're not the majority, mm. which often in our neighborhoods and in our churches, in our schools, we, we still like, have yeah. this mm. thing. We want to be the majority because that makes you feel safe. So, so that's the kind of work we were trying to do, um, and the storytelling was just one part of that, mm. which. The storytelling, what that does is it, it gets you a little bit out of your head and draws in the emotion. So, so a big part of this work is how do we create safe enough spaces? Yeah. So we literally would sit in a circle and we would have a candle and we would create a working agreement and we agree on we're not going to judge each other. We're not going to avoid the difficult stuff, but nobody's going to be shamed and judged. Even if somebody like me is there and they might be angry about you know older men and what we did but the space is not going to be a space of judgment it's going to be a space of compassionate listening mm. and uninterrupted sharing from the heart and when you do that for a day like hours of of sitting in that circle uh, and you, you don't interrupt each other you listen with your heart each person gets half an hour 40 minutes to just share in a way where you, you, you've not shared, mm-hmm. to be listened to, to be affirmed, as it were, for being on this journey, that, that becomes a very powerful, almost mm-hmm. like a healing space where, where you realize actually listening to the different people, we share some of these struggles. Yeah. We also share a lack of cultural literacy. Uh, we share conflicts within our families. We share frustrations with our church, mm-hmm. um, but we're not alone. Yeah. So then it becomes like a sense of, of community. community. And, and that we sometimes, we struggle even to find language to talk about these things. We become aware of emotions that we're sitting with that we've not articulated. And some of it is gendered, some of it is around sexual orientation, of course, like you know, all these ways that we are complex human beings that has been suppressed and denied. So when you open up the race conversation, other things in terms of identity comes up. Um, so, so for me, that's, I, I, and we're still doing this yeah. uh, in small scale still, but, but I wish we have more of that. I wish I could, I mean, can I join? Like, is, is, well, is yeah. there, are there places that are outside the Dutch Reform Church yeah. where people are doing this? I mean, yeah. I think sometimes think about, uh, you know, vulnerability as, as, as one of the key mm. things to learn about. Maybe mm. like thinking about it more like 
a muscle that you can develop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think experiences like yeah. this, storytelling experiences, cross-generational, multiracial, yeah. um, et cetera. Uh, if, you, if you, this idea of intra-work, like mm. if, 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 not to minimize the value of the workshop, but even just that capacity to exercise your, vulner, your vulnerability muscle, yeah. I think because that, will be something that helps you when you go out and do missionary exactly. work. When you engage with uh, people across, yeah, yeah. that you are more, yeah. you're fitter Absolutely. in being vulnerable. Yeah. Because I think a lot of connection comes from the ability to reveal yourself with others. And that takes vulnerability. And Afrikaans, um, for me, my experience in the, in the Dutch Reformed Church upbringing, being mm-hmm. Afrikaans man, vulnerability was the last thing you, don't, yeah. you could do. You Even are opening amongst, yourself up to such a threatening space if you're vulnerable. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have had an experience where vulnerability was actually... Um, Reinforced positively or... Yeah, was, 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 was a, a gateway to deeper connection mm-hmm. with yourself but also with others. And you've had that over a period of time. So it wasn't just half an hour. It was like two days or three days. And ideally, of course, you want to have multiple of those yeah. opportunities. But, but at least that, that kind of space, again, where you don't just jump in and ask people to you know, become vulnerable. It's, there's a kind of a, a gentle preparation and there's a way that you prepare. It's got to be carefully facilitated. Yeah. It's got to be carefully followed up. So storytelling comes with uh, lots of pitfalls as well. And, and um, I'm grateful that, 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 that we can still learn together how to do this. And especially for white South Africans and perhaps even people in the Afrikaner community who, who like to speak about our history of traumatization by the English, which is what I grew up with and your parents yep. very strongly grew up with. And it's still in us. Yep. You know, when somebody talks down to us, when we struggle with the way we pronounce English and there's a kind of a white English liberal cultural yeah. superiority presence, it triggers something yeah. in me, definitely. So, mm. so we like to go there, but, but I think those issues, the issues around conscription and, and the issues with our frustrations with our church and with our parents, I think those spaces can be held in, in a kind of a, uh, let's call it a white workspace, where it's a, a, a racial affinity group, an intra-group space. And I do think when you do that work, <clears throat> you do that honestly, by the time you come to a racially mixed space, you might be more able to just sit with um, the pain that is being shared and not try to compete in terms of of now I want to share my pain kind of thing. Mm. But that you're more able to be vulnerable in that space, but not in a way that's needy and recentering, you know, white tears again. That you can show compassion, but it's done in a way where it's it's a little bit more worked through, it's a little bit more aware, so that we become less burdensome to our black colleagues when we do this work. Because they often say to me, and you probably have heard that too, that when a white woman in particular, but a white man, when we show emotion, that quickly becomes the focus of the conversation. Or if we are dis- uncomfortable, so often people then try to find ways to make us comfortable. Mm. Uh, and we're asking them to share their pain so that we can become aware of, you know, but am I doing my reading? Am I doing my, you know, podcasts and all the other th- things that are out there mm. so that I'm not asking my black 
friend, colleague to, to, to share their pay, to do the emotional labor, as mm. they say. That's, so, sorry, so, that's really interesting. Yeah. I just want to make sure I, I fully understand that. Because I think it's, that's a powerful point. Mm. Um, I also read something about what, like liberation um, for, which is a very conservative idea for me. Um, a, con, a, a, a very, uh, what's the <laughs> opposite of conservative, controversial idea yeah. for me, white liberation, or like our liberation. Mm. Um, but that there is, and it's so, such a difficult thing for me to explore because it makes me feel like I'm being selfish about yeah. this work. Yes. But that there is healing for us to also, that, that there can be healing for white Afrikaans people in this process of racial reconciliation. Absolutely. Like that's a completely new Absolutely. idea for me. And the first time I thought about it, I was very uncomfortable in thinking about it because it feels like we should wait in line. And there's an element of truth, of course. There is a sense in which we should not be in the center. We should not be the ones getting all the attention. There is a, a kind of humility I think you want to bring as a stance mm. to this work. But we know from Biko, we know from people like Archbishop Tutu, my colleague here, Prof. Pumla, Kubodo, Marikizela, um, so many black colleagues that we work with, we know that there's a profound sense in which we, our humanity is at stake, all of us. Mm. Um, and that's for me the sadness, again, that, that if racial reconciliation is seen as something to be scared of or something where you now have to just lose a lot, or it sounds like an invitation to your own funeral, mm. um, then it's so, it's so sad because mm. it, it actually becomes a block then yeah. for you also to become deeply alive. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, white liberation, I mean, one needs to be careful with that language, as long as, as, especially if you think we can do it by ourselves. Mm. I think white work, uh, in terms of intra-group racial affinity work, is really in response to black South Africans saying to us, like, you need to do some of the work as well. But it can only be a part of a process where you then go back to the cross-racial, the interracial, the multiracial spaces. And then it's a bit like, I sometimes think it's like when you climb a mountain, especially a high mountain, you sometimes need a base camp. Yeah. Uh, a space okay. where, where yes. perhaps in yeah. terms of you can speak Afrikaans, you don't have to worry so much about saying or doing something that might be offensive because we're all learning or you you just people intuitively understand where you're coming from or you can cry or you can be frustrated and angry without recentering whiteness so yeah. sometimes i think it could it could be a little bit of a base camp and you can recover you can reflect you can be supported and then you've got energy again to go back to climbing together and then sometimes you have to come back to your base camp so it's not a, a linear thing where you do your white work and are you ready for deep reconciliation work. It's, it's, it's a combination. And I've seen this work in Northern Ireland with Protestants and Catholics, Israel, um, Irish and British. I've seen this in Israel-Palestine mm. with Israelis and Palestinians, where people combine the, the deep um, justice work, the deep healing work with, uh, they combine this kind of intergroup, deep dialogue, storytelling, activism, with spaces where people can reflect in their own language and in, yeah. in their own cultural setting. Yeah. 
Uh, we've also seen in especially Northern Ireland where that could become easily a seductive way to avoid the difficult combined work. I see. Because there is a sense in which it's easier when you speak Afrikaans, yeah. when we sit with people that culturally we just don't have to translate anything. It's, it's there, even though intergenerationally it's not so straightforward. Uh, so it's seductive. Uh, and, and you can end up very quickly spending too much time and effort on that. Um, but if you're aware of those pitfalls and you have strong, authentic relationships across the racial divide and you're committed to justice work, anti-racism work, you know, you're not avoiding the difficult issues. Yeah. It's not just let's play together and eat together and like the Israelis and the Palestinians talk about hugs and hummus, <sighs> you know, which becomes a way of avoiding the injustice of the occupation. Like, mm. we need to deal with the, the racialized inequalities in South Africa. We need to take responsibility intergenerationally, transgenerationally for what white people have done in this part of the world. So those are big and difficult issues, but I don't think you can do that sustainably unless you do self-care practices like the spiritual practices we talk about, unless you have a base camp on a regular basis, and unless you have friendships across uh, the racial divide. You know, Otherwise you just get burnout and overwhelmed. Um, and that's, I struggle with that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think. I mean, I heard you say on one of, another interview, um, it's not a race, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? Comrades, you know, this idea of <laughs> up and down, up and down. And I, I really love yeah. that. Yeah. And, I, and that then, to me, becomes maybe one of the reasons why the Dutch form church as an institution holds potential, because it can offer yeah. a base camp. But if it's transformed and if people are educated, it could also act as a facilitator Absolutely. to ensure that you have a base camp, but you also do the difficult interracial work. And in a way that is going beyond missionary, helping yes. the poor. Yeah. So it's with a restorative, institutional, historical yes. awareness and with a kind of humility in terms of the authentic relationships that are needed. Uh, but yes, I agree with you. I mean, that's partly why I was willing to spend so much time working with young people, especially also some of the leadership within the Dutch Reformed Church. Because if you think about it, how many institutions have a reach across this country, especially into rural communities? Yeah. Given the dysfunction of our government and local government in particular, we're looking for institutions that have capacity over a period of time. And the Dutch Reformed Church, I think, has over a thousand congregations still, sure. um, if I'm not mistaken, all over the country. And it comes with lots of challenges and problems and limitations, but also with potential. And amongst the younger uh, generation of ministers in the church, there's definitely a willingness to, to go on this journey. We need to do a lot of upskilling or a lot of preparation, a lot of muscle strengthening. Work. We need to do a lot of uprooting of inherited missionary paternalistic ideologies. But, but I still think it's one of the few institutions uh, within the white Afrikaans-speaking community yeah. that has that kind of reach. And, and there are pockets of very progressive ecumenical engagement. There's people with deep and long commitments to this work that you don't often see in the media, or you don't see when you go to Durbanville, or you know, one of these middle-class, white middle-class Afrikaner spaces, yeah. like where you think, wow, this is, how is this going to change? You yeah. know? So, 
And even in those congregations, I know there are individuals who are doing amazing work. And, and so it's almost like, can we find almost the yeast that Jesus speaks of? You know, this John Paul Lederach, the peace practitioner or activist, speaks about critical yeast. We don't need big numbers. We need people in strategic positions of influence in their institution and in their community who are willing to embark on authentic relationships which will sustain the journey when the going gets tough. Um, and, and I think the white work, intra-group work, is a, is a contribution to say we need to do a lot of unlearning mm. and we need to do a lot of re-education. And some of that work we can do by ourselves. We need to also do a lot of intergenerational, transgenerational healing work. Some of that we can do. We need to deal with militarized masculinity, uh, with this kind of uh, gender, of course, sexual orientation, insensitivity, um, all the furor, you know, again, over you know, same-sex marriages, and, and how people fixate on that at the expense of dealing with the big issues around yeah. the Dutch Reformed Church responsibility for, for um, its role in apartheid, uh, and therefore for the legacy of apartheid. So, um, it's such a, uh, I don't know what the word is, you might have a word for it, but like, paradox is, mm. is, is the only word I can come up with. How this institution with such a dark history yeah. holds so much potential mm. to make a real change. It's such a. I think it's, it could be an irony, a paradox that that I think it's more difficult when you are still committed to this church to deny your responsibility because it was so explicit. It's almost like so undeniable. People still do deny. I mean, yeah, we, we people find ways to yeah. to <laughs> focus on the fight against communism, focus on all the wonderful things we've done in terms of Dienst van Barmhartigheid, this kind of charity work and. So there's ways that people selectively want to feel good about themselves and their institution, and I understand that. But as far as institutions go, at least this church officially has now accepted its, its justification of, of a, a sin against humanity. Um, it, it has come a long way in terms of facing up to, to its responsibility. It's, it's, it's more difficult to translate that at each congregational level, and different parts of the country have its own dynamics, we know that. But Was there a type of official um, owning up to... Yes, this, over time it, it went in stages from the mid-90s onwards, okay. at least in terms of the official documentation. Okay. Uh, uh, I mean, you can critique it, and I think it should be critiqued, but, but many other institutions are struggling with that, especially the white liberal institutions. Okay. Even Archbishop Tutu during the Truth Commission, mm -hmm. and when we had the faith communities hearing, if you go to that volume, it's volume five, I think. No, volume four of the TRC report deals with the institutional hearings. Okay. If you read that faith community chapter, mm -hmm. it's very revealing how a number of congregations, especially the mainstream English um, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, how they had to also say, 
there's a there's a there's a there's a you know there's a there's a very painful complicity and there's a part of our history where we accepted and and basically supported the segregationist sure. things and we have a responsibility and, and you hear other church denominations but I think by and large my stereotypical perception would be in the white English speaking liberal so-called liberal community people have a longer way to go than within the Afrikaans white community to actually accept our implication, accept how we've benefited and still are benefiting from the system. That's interesting. And I have heard from black colleagues that they sometimes prefer to work with like the Dutch Reformed Church rather than say one of the other so-called liberal denominations because at least there's a, a greater acknowledgement, mm. there's, a, there's a bit more humility mm. and I didn't know that. That's really encouraging. Yeah, I think there is that dynamic. And mm. in the Eastern Cape, where I've done a bit of work, there's like the Western Cape is a bit different because you still have our kind of population dynamics and our complicated racial dynamics. Mm. But in other parts of the country, I think there are places where people have made significant progress. Um, and, and, and one of the projects we are now busy with is trying to identify those pockets those people, those areas where there's movement, yeah. and say, what can we learn from that? Ah. It's a kind of appreciative inquiry. That's cool. Because we tend to focus on the lack of transformation, the ongoing segregation, the ongoing racism, I, and we can spend a lot of time unpacking that. Mm. Um, but as a theory of change, I think that's problematic, because if you only try and diagnose what is wrong, you don't always have the energy then to say, but how do we change this? Mm -hmm. So another approach would be to say, we also have to identify where things are happening, where there's a bit of progress. Mm -hmm. Learn from that and then try and make that bigger. Uh, and so I'm, I'm drawn to that approach. Um, uh, and there are lots of younger people and there are some I don't want to mention names now, but I can give examples to you and you can follow up with them. Yeah. And I think that would be encouraging for you to interview some of them. I'd love to. I did um, read that, uh, what's it like, I've got the numbers here, but like 40% um, of the DRC clergy are over 57 years of age yeah. and like 23% are under 40. So, yeah. so it's unfortunately, there is a, there's a blockage there. But that means that in the next what it's i think it's 10 a, years yeah, i think there's a shift yeah. and the church at leadership level are realizing that we yeah. have to change for this church to survive because the younger generation are going to come in and if they're more aware if they're more vulnerable if they're more open to doing white work if they're more, you know, i hope so i mean there's also obviously young people who are more reactionary yeah. um and the church is, a, is in a dilemma because, or this denomination because many of the older people have more disposable wealth and they are actually making, keeping the church alive, yeah, you know, yeah, and there's lots of people yeah. leaving the church. So, you know, you get into real politics almost where how do you survive as an institution? Um, but I hope that that will not become such a block mm. that this, this kind of more, this kind of useful energy that, that I think is now there um, and is stronger than it used to be that can hopefully make a difference. Um, but I think, I, I think we need to think generationally. I think it's, it, it is a longer term process, uh, even here at the university where we're now grappling with transformation questions. You can change policies, you can change rules and regulations, and you can do quantitative uh, 
changes and we need to in terms of student numbers, staff numbers, etc. But the deeper work, the qualitative changing of, let's say, the heart, yeah. um, that takes time and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it's, it's not yeah. e as easy as shifting uh, the numbers no. uh, or yeah. making, yeah. yeah, like, not that systemic change is easy, but I think this kind of work is, yeah. is difficult for individuals to do yeah. already. Um, so, more difficult for groups yeah. and communities yeah. to do. Absolutely. So, in terms of, for me, working with, with the young people and actually to be involved in this work in the Dutch Reformed Church, because I was studying to become a minister in this church. I was very committed, very evangelical, very deeply vocational in my commitment to working with the church and, and almost like trying to avoid politics in the early 80s. But once I was confronted with what was going on in South Africa, but also the way in which the Dutch Reformed Church, through its theology, but also through its missionary policies, through its influence on the National Party, the Bruderbund, how this church mm -hmm. was a key pillar of the apartheid system mm -hmm. and contributed to this kind of moral theological justification, but once I realized that this is what's happening, this is the church that I'm in, that I'm working, that I am committed to serve, that I'm a member of, that I was, it's my mother church, I just couldn't reconcile those two worlds. So I became very angry, very disillusioned, felt betrayed, you know, by, by deeply betrayed by the church and by, by my ministers and by my family. So, and I didn't always even realize how deep that was. So in working with these mostly younger members of the church, but also some of the leadership, and seeing their willingness to acknowledge, to commit to this work, it was very unexpectedly healing for me to actually realize, wow, okay, this is my mother church. I don't, I'm not a member. I'm still, I think, a member, but I'm involved in more ecumenical yeah, circles. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm much more ecumenical in my involvement. Um, but I'm okay. Like there's a part of me that's that still feels rooted. But but I was surprised by the, 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 the how emotional I became sometimes. How I was touched by what, if especially older people acknowledge. Um, so that was a part of your kind of yeah. healing yeah. journey. I thought I was sort of I've worked through that. You know, this was in the mid '80s. <laughs> so you think, okay, by by the. 2020s, I'm sort of more or less through that, but yeah. it's it's the layered nature. I think it's again the language of deep water that there's there's layers and layers and layers to this. Yeah. Um, and it takes time, I think, for the deeper things to surface, yeah. uh, and and to be accepted. There's there's an unconscious. I mean, I mean, of course, deep water is a very strong metaphor, symbol of the unconscious. Yeah. And I think we underestimate not just at an individual level, but at a collective level. Yeah. How much is, is in our collective unconscious yeah. that's bubbling away or that is entangled or it's the scars that are there. Uh, and so, so the Centering Prayer um, movement really is premised on a, or is making use of psychological development theory, which says that we all come with a certain woundedness Going back to our childhood, mm. our need for security, our need for control, and our need for belonging, mm. affection, esteem, 
Those are fundamental human needs, and all of us come with a woundedness from our childhood because no parent, no family is perfect. So those core needs that are wounded get triggered when somebody calls you a racist or when you when people say we need to redistribute wealth. When you or feel like a marginalized community. Feel like marginalized, my language is threatened. So yeah. so then you become, you know, like, so then there's layers of woundedness. Mm. And a lot of that is unconscious. So you react, you avoid, yeah. you run away, or you become angry and defensive and blame the ANC for all the problems yeah. in our country. So, so that kind of running away, angry defensiveness from a psychological and a psycho-spiritual point of view is, is a sign of deep woundedness. Mm. And that's not an excuse, but it gives us a kind of a, a therapeutic pastoral lens to look at it and to say we have to go on healing journeys together yes. so that we can also be prophets and we can also be anti-racist activists. So, so I think we need both. Um, yeah, I mean, what I'm taking away from this is that healing for us individually in the Afrikaans white community holds potential for us as individuals, of course, in the same way it holds potential mm. for all individuals. Mm. But if we're willing to do the work, it is a starting point to a more authentic racial reconciliation in South Africa. Because you're doing the work as a member of a group. Yes. So it's in effect intergroup work we're doing. Yeah. And you're doing it on behalf. You know, one of the prayer practices we use in these workshops is, is the welcoming practice, and I can share more detail with you later, but part of it is to say we are doing this work, the deep healing work, we're welcoming the spirit in the sense of deep healing, which beyond language, beyond words, but we are doing this on behalf of everybody who is wounded in our families, in our communities, in our church, in our country, in the world. Mm-hmm. So you really want to cultivate that expansive boundaryless compassion that we are working towards um, mm. and and that's also very like because I've done work internationally I think I, I do have a bit of a sense of yeah. we are part of a much bigger global community mm. struggling with these issues mm. and it's helpful to bring that into our work with the Dutch Reformed Church the Dutch Reformed Church is not unique in struggling with these issues white South Africans Afrikaans speaking white South Africans we are not unique we, need to, we are specifically responsible with our specific stories, but we are part of the human story. Mm. And that allows us to be a bit more compassionate also with ourselves. ourselves. I think, uh, yeah. So self-compassion a is, is a critical uh, yeah. virtue that we, yeah. we're not good at in a church denomination that is quite good at moralistic preaching and sinfulness and how bad we are. Like, so that tradition comes with that unfortunate shadow side that mm. is a lack of, of compassion also for ourselves. Um, yeah, so yeah, this makes sense. It makes so much sense. I mean, we don't have time for it, but I, I want to end on um, touching on concepts I want to talk to you about in, in the future uh, to frame a question. Um, so I read about moral injury mm. recently, which is the the original reason I reached out to you, mm. uh, but then I started researching your work and it mm. just, uh, moral mm. injury became lower on the priority list, but there's something about moral injury that I find really uh, intriguing, and you were looking in this um, workshop I was watching on YouTube, you were looking at it in terms of, or in relation to my father's generation who went to uh, war and some of the moral injury that 
that they are facing today. Um, but I, I thought about all these uncomfortable things like uh, white guilt, mm. white fatigue, white fragility. I thought about white fear mm. yesterday in particular when I watched the response of the face front after their, um, their, mm. their thing was dismissed in court. And I thought about this weird position we're in. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know if moral injury is the right term, but this, this feeling I have as being my generation of white male feeling it's not guilt, shame is closer to it. It's, it's about, about yeah. as far back as colonialism. Slavery, yeah. yeah. Uh, through yeah. apartheid, through the different ways in which my community are still discriminating, but more about beyond my life. Yeah. And I thought, is there a word for that? Because moral injury comes close, but I don't think it's... Yeah, thanks for the, I mean, I think we need a separate conversation around moral injury. Yeah. And that's the secular version. Uh, but I think the... the, the the original idea was more rooted in the spiritual awareness that when, when you are involved or associated or implicated in something that violates your deepest values, mm -hmm. your soul, your deep self, gets wounded yeah. to the point where it can fragment mm -hmm. and shatter. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of healing journey which cannot be addressed by post-traumatic stress therapy. It's part of it. It's deeper. And I think that you need language of soul, spirit. Mm. And you do find it in the literature of moral okay. injury. Um, and the psychologists would even say, we can't deal with this. this we need people, we need pastors, we need uh, priests, we, need, we ah. need people who can accompany somebody on a spiritual journey. Yeah. And then you back into St. John of the Cross and you're into this wonderful rich tradition of what is called the dark night of the soul. Okay. Which we don't have in the Reformed tradition. And this is now deep water, but there's a powerful tradition which talks about, you know, finding God in that kind of darkness. Mm. And veterans, uh, people who are involved in violence, people who are grappling with moral injury, or um, the violation of being involved in the violation of your own deepest values, they're saying that somehow we can't find a God that's moralistic and that has the answers and that you know, the, the, the kind of domesticated, you know, blue-eyed Jesus. We need a God who is with us in this darkness, in the, in the searching mm. for language, and a God who is outraged and angry and um, to yeah. understand violence because he also experienced violence yeah. and was part of a time when there was a, a, an empire and soldiers who crucified. So it was extremely, it's in a war setting. Mm. Um, so, so then those, it comes alive, you know, and, and then there's no quick fix, but it's in the facing of the darkness. It's in the acceptance of responsibility. It's in searching for forgiveness. Mm. It's in becoming involved in reparative journeys of giving something back to the communities yeah. that were violated. Yeah. Uh, and, where you were violated in the violation of a fellow human being. And that you can be, your parents could be, anybody you identify with. Yeah. And it can be retrospective. Yes, it's my lineage. It's my your, anybody that you are associated with mm. or connected with, 
uh, that you share values with, that, that somehow you are implicated in, can have a bad impact. And the latest findings and the latest research, and it's a pity we didn't get to that, is that moral injury is now very widespread in the education system in the States, in the medical system, where people feel they are being forced to be behaving, to be acting in a way that goes against their deepest vocation mm. because it's become bureaucratized, it's become like corporatized mm. in the education system. You know, you can't be a teacher because you have got to fill in all these forms and you've got to, this outcome-based education and you're examining people all the time or as a doctor, you are just constantly writing bills. That kind of experience feels like your deepest values, your vocation, your spirit is being violated. Sure. And people, people, suicide, it's very, it's rising, it's psychological burnout. They talk about burnout, but actually say, no, I'm not burnt out. I am morally injured. My soul is... And I like the fact that, you know, not like it, but it's now being used in settings outside veterans. Because some, I mean, not many of us have the experience of actual war and killing. That's where I, I couldn't find the... So, so I haven't looked that deeply, but I couldn't find it being explored in the way that I'm feeling it. Because yes. I'm removed yes. generationally from the things that I'm feeling these feelings for. But it's... It, that's what you feel. And I, I like how you said about like it's your soul. And I think maybe that's why I'm doing this. Yeah. This one of the reasons I'm doing this project is because it is fragmented. Yeah. I, I, you honor, yeah, that is what is going on. Thank you for giving me that. No, I think it's... I, for me, that was a... And I, I can, we can talk much more about it. Mm. It's got many strands to it, but I think it is one of the more accessible ways of capturing the depths of what you actually experience when you're honest about what we as individuals, families, communities, church, as white South Africans, as white people, not just South African. Like, yeah. if you think of the layers and layers and layers. about America waking up to all the like it's, it's a profound, that it's a profound um, soul wounding. I think it's almost like you do need that language. And you don't have to use it in a very religious, like churchy way, but I think no, soul cuts it's more of a spiritual, agnostic yeah, way. Is it, is it, it. It's, I don't think moral is the word to use. No, um, it's deeper it, than that. It's deeper than that. No. Moral is used to say it's deeper than psychological. Okay. And then but deeper the, than moral is yeah. soul. I think it's, 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 like it's trying to get to the sense of your deepest values are being violated. But your deepest, deepest self is your soul. It's not just values, like it doesn't. Mm. Um, so, so, and therefore you need people who are able to go on a spiritual quest, a spiritual journey of deep healing. That's the language we need. And we do have those traditions in the Christian tradition. Um, okay. I can refer you to podcasts. And, yeah. and it's like really powerful, like John of the Cross, Dark Knight of the Soul. Okay. And where that insight came from in terms of his own suffering. I'll check that out. So, I mean, it's very, I'm completely ignorant. Uh, is that a section in the Bible? Uh, no, is there a story no. in the Bible? That He's I a Spanish mystic. Yeah, he goes back to this like 16th, 17th okay. century. And he wrote on this. Okay. But so there's a whole tradition. I can okay. refer you to people. Yeah. But there's a whole tradition which is called the apophatic 
like it's beyond images, beyond language. And it goes back to Moses in the cloud on the mountain. Okay. Um, I'd love to look at that. Yeah. Jonah in the belly of the whale. Okay. Um, um, the seed that has to fall in the ground before it like, like um, Nicodemus, like visiting Jesus at night. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jesus, Jesus himself going into the mountains at night and praying. Yes, this is the so recurring theme of going into of, the of darkness. And, beyond, and then darkness not used in the evil, evil but sense, but in there's a, there's a, it's beyond language, beyond, it's an intimate encounter, yeah. but it's also used in the dark. So you, it's multiple, it's got multiple mm. meanings. That's okay. one of the things I'm really wanting to explore more, because I think that spirituality or that strand Mm. gives us the practices but also the language yeah. to be okay with not having language. <laughs> yeah, feeling. It's something, I mean, even beyond feeling. So it's beyond what you can... Mm. Anything beyond the finite, actually. Mm. Is it, there's, a, there's a kind of a... In, it, it, I'm not saying your woundedness is infinite because like, actually God is infinite and, and therefore can hold you. Mm. But it, it goes beyond anything you can capture and control and grasp. Mm. And, it's, and you, yeah. need a, you need a spirituality that's strong enough or that has the capacity to sit with the discomfort of not being able to grasp it. Like you. Yeah, because we, we generally like having answers. And, big time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, but that's a whole conversation. And, and we do weave some of these practices into these workshops as yeah. well. And, trying to say that we can do the storytelling, but we also need to develop together spiritual practices that can cultivate this capacity to go on this kind of journey. And we sometimes think we can preach and we can teach and create awareness. That image of the, like it's a, the image I have is of a little swat poiki with three legs, you know, like we focus on awareness or consciousness, but what about capacity? Mm -hmm. like, we presuppose capacity when we ask people to do this. But we don't know if they already. What are those capacities? Yeah. So that's this. The, and then the third one is community. Mm -hmm. So consciousness, community, capacity. Those are the the three legs mm -hmm. we need uh, for intragroup work, but also for intragroup work. And, and yeah. if you think of your theory of change, you need to think at least along those three lines. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I the. People you mentioned, the figures, the characters you mentioned in these stories of going into the darkness, it sounds like they generally go alone. But no, they're part of. Yeah, no, no, it's part of. They're part of community. Oh, okay. There is a solitary side, but no, no. Yeah. It's, also, they come with a worldview that as you do this, you surround it by the ancestors, by the the saints, the angels. The, mm. Like it's a beautiful worldview that's that's different to this kind of empiricist individualist, Western, Liberant. kind of way of thinking about yourself on a journey. Um, okay. Yeah, these are, but these, this is now a much bigger conversation. Yeah. So I can refer you to some of those, and then well, once you've had a look, we can chat again. Yeah, I love that. Because that's really where I find my sustenance, and that's critical to my ability to do this work. Yeah. It comes from decades now of being immersed in this particular spirituality. And there's some good literature that I can share, but also good practices. But for me, and it's very similar to what you find in the best of the Buddhist tradition, the best mm. of the Hindu tradition. Like it, it becomes very quickly, like Thomas Merton in his life, very quickly it becomes interface. Okay. Thomas teaching 
very quickly, when you meet somebody who is a disciple or somebody who is a practitioner of their faith tradition and they're open to the contemplative mystical strand of their tradition, you find a lot of common ground. Okay. More so than with a member of the Dutch Reformed Church who's a cultural Christian, yeah. a heady Christian, mm. but actually not really committed to this path of radical inclusivity that Jesus is mm. embodies. Sure, but Adam, thank you for everything. <laughs> We're just starting, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, no, cool. Uh, That's Valadam uh, Favurt. I'll have links to his work um, in the description for this podcast. I really encourage you to read his papers and to yeah engage with his with his work, to read his books. He's got a really unique. Um, experience and some real wisdom to offer. In the next episode, I'm speaking to Olivia Krokam, who's a tantric mediator in Cape Town. Olivia opened my eyes to how our sexuality, uh, our kind of sexual experiences and our desire can be locations of healing and spiritual practice. Um, so look out for that coming up in the next few weeks. Thanks for listening.